Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come now to the preaching of your word, we do remember how often the Israelites were stubborn and stiff-necked and did not listen to your prophets. But as we come now, we do pray that you would grant your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and to grant us that soft heart ready to receive your word, to listen, to give us faith to believe, and to respond with obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you please now open your Bibles to our sermon text, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. You find this in the Pew Bibles on page 948. Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. As the old proverb goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. We see this proverb in action when the Pharisees team up with their adversaries, the Herodians, to set a trap for Jesus in Mark chapter 12. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Jesus came to earth in politically fraught times, to say the least. The Herodians, as you can see by their name, supported King Herod, who had been set on his throne by the Roman emperor, while the Pharisees detested Rome's rule over Judea. 
They thought that by forcing Jesus to come down one way or the other on paying taxes to Caesar, he was certain to either upset his followers or to be liable to, for charges, liable to charges for insurrection against Rome. But his response is brilliant. Seeing the image of Caesar on the coin, coin, he acknowledges the authority of Caesar to impose taxes, and he says they should be paid with Caesar's own coin. However, he also says that mankind is created in the image and likeness of God. And thus we owe God an even greater debt. We owe him everything we are. And so we are to love and serve him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. We're continuing our series this morning on the Bible's teaching on civil government, but we've returned to where we began, back to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 13. We spent one week looking at God's establishment of civil government in the Noahic Covenant, which I believe is the primary passage that Paul had in mind as he wrote this passage before us this morning. David Van Drunen finds seven points of substantial similarity between the two passages, which backs up this claim. We then had two sermons looking at civil government in Old Testament Israel, covering the entire period from Moses on Mount Sinai up to the coming of Jesus Christ. And now we're back in Romans. But here we should recall the broader context of the letter. Since the beginning of chapter 12, Paul has been calling us to present ourselves to God as living holy sacrifices, well-pleasing to God. And to that end, we are to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And so now this section on submission to the governing authorities is one more application of these general principles of the Christian life. Then in the immediately preceding chapter, Paul was teaching us how to respond to those who wrong us, not repaying evil with evil, but rather overcoming evil with good. He commanded us never to avenge ourselves, but to entrust vengeance to the Lord. And this is connected to our passage this morning, because as we will see, one way that God accomplishes his vengeance, uh, one way that God, sorry, accomplishes his vengeance in this world is through the civil rulers who bury the sword to punish evildoers on his behalf. And so as we look at chapter 13 this morning, we will first see the general command to submit in verse 1a, followed by five reasons for it in verses 1b through 5, and we will then get one application of this all to pay our taxes in verses 6 and 7. I've already introduced this application through the teaching of Jesus, but both the general command to submit and the application to pay taxes are not commands that have been particularly well received by all Christians at all times and all places. I imagine not all the Christians in Rome were delighted to read this portion of the letter when it first arrived. Perhaps this is a sermon you are not particularly looking forward to yourself. 
especially as our government grows increasingly hostile to Christianity. And yet, let me remind you, this is God's word for you this morning. It is God's word for your good, for your edification, for your sanctification. God's word is true, and it is holy, and it is unchanging. The governments of this world will rise and they will fall. They will be more or less righteous, more or less corrupt. And yet the general command to Christians, as we see this morning, is to submit to them. Trust in God that he is good and that he is wise and that he is merciful and he is sovereign over all things. And so we need to keep that in mind as you hear what his word has to say to you this morning. So let's begin with the general command to submit to the governing authorities. Verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Notice first that Paul addresses this command to every person. Although Paul is writing this letter to the Christians in Rome, the Christians, the command has universal application to all men everywhere. Paul's command is that we be subject to the governing authorities, recognizing their authority and submitting to the authority that they have over us. Why did he have to issue this command? Recall that he was writing to a church of both Jews and Gentiles, and Jews in particular had no love for the Roman Empire. In the gospel, we read about the zealots, including one of Jesus' disciples, Simon, the zealot. The zealots had led several failed rebellions against the Roman government, some of which are mentioned in Acts chapter 5, 36 and 37. And the Jews had expected a Messiah who would overthrow the shackles of Rome and restore Israel to its former earthly glory. And even though Jesus did not come for this purpose, Paul does teach that we are now citizens of heaven, citizens of the kingdom of God. And some may have misunderstood that to mean that we no longer have to submit to earthly rulers. But here he teaches clearly we do still need to submit to governing authorities. Now you'll likely recognize this concept of submission from other places you've seen it in Scripture. Wives are, committed to, are commanded to submit to their husbands, slaves to submit to their masters, children are to obey their parents. And it's the same basic idea here as well. Paul then lists five reasons for this command. Reason one is that God has appointed them. 1b, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, God's own authority, of course, flows from the fact that he is the author, he is the creator of all things. He created all things in the six days of creation, and he created each and every one of us. And so he has an exclusive right to our obedience. But he also delegates his authority to lesser subordinate authorities. And as Paul writes here, the governing authorities that exist have been instituted by God. We recently saw how God taught this very lesson that all authority comes from him to King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. When Nebuchadnezzar had grown proud and he gloried in himself and in all his accomplishments, 
The Lord humbled him and drove him away from men and made him like a beast until he acknowledged that the Lord reigns over the kingdoms of men and sets whomever he will over them. Certainly from a human perspective, we see how in the course of histories, rulers come into power either through being born into royalty or through winning an election or through seizing power by force. But beyond and over all these things, we know that God is sovereign over all and he is reigning over all. And so he is ultimately the one who raises up or casts down rulers according to his good pleasure and for his own purposes. And so Paul can say the authorities that are in place have ultimately been appointed by God. Even those who have seized power by force, even the pagan emperor Nero who ruled Rome as Paul was writing this letter, even he was appointed by God to his throne. And since all human authority flows from God's authority, this authority is necessarily limited. No human authority can command you to sin against God. That would be to go beyond his God-given authority. I'll be looking in detail next week at the topic of civil disobedience in the face of tyrannical governments. So the first reason for submitting to the governing authorities is that God has appointed them, granting them their authority. This brings us to reason number two. Those who resist will incur judgment. Verse two. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. The second reason is actually a consequence of God's appointment of ruling authorities. The one who resists, that is, who fails to submit to them, is consequently resisting God himself, and so will bring judgment on himself. Now, Paul does not specify here what the source of the judgment will be, whether the judgment will come directly from God himself or from the earthly authorities. But either way, Paul's point stands. When you defy the civil authorities, you are defying God whose authority stands behind them, and you will reap the consequence of your actions, namely, judgment. This is a very practical reason. It reminds us of one reason that we submit to the discipline of our parents. And children, I hope you know this very well. What happens when you disobey your parents? You will be punished for it. That punishment may take different forms in different households and depending on your age and depending on how responsible your parents are. But if you have good parents, their responsibility is to make sure that you learn that disobedience has consequences. And the more serious the disobedience, the more serious the consequences. And the same is true in the realm of the civil government. The more serious the crime, the more serious, the more severe the punishment. The second reason for submission is that those who fail to do so will incur judgment. This brings us then to our third reason in verses 3 and 4. Rulers serve God by punishing evildoers and praising those who do good. 
Verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the on the wrongdoer. I've said all along that God establishes civil government in the Noahic covenant to maintain and promote justice. And in these verses, Paul lays out the responsibility of the governing authorities in his own terms. Notice that there is a parallel between fear and praise in verse 3. Rulers are a source of terror and fear for those who do evil, but also a source of approval for those who do good. The word translated approval at the end of verse 3 can also be translated praise. You also have the parallel in, in verse, uh, the parallel verse in 1 Peter 2.14. Governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And verse 4 goes on to highlight two particular ways that the ruling authorities function as the servant of God. And this word servant is the same Greek term that can also be translated as minister or deacon. That may be a surprise to you. We may expect a servant of God to serve knowingly and willingly. But in God's providence, it is also possible for even an unbeliever to unknowingly serve God's purposes as a civil ruler. So first, in the the positive function, rulers praise those who are doing good, which, of course, is exactly what the Christian ought to be doing already. So Paul says, this is for your good. It encourages Christians to keep doing the good they ought to be doing already. Second, we have the negative function. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The sword here serves as the symbol of judicial power, in particular the power to inflict capital punishment, the death sentence. As you recall, this was the responsibility entrusted to man in the Noahic covenant in Genesis 9-6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And while Paul had, forbid, had forbidden Christians from taking vengeance on those who wrong them, here he says that civil rulers bear the sword of God's vengeance to carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. This includes the punishment of all crimes, up to and including capital punishment for murder and other serious crimes. The standard that the rulers follow in what they praise and what they punish is God's natural moral law, which is written on the heart of every person created in the image of God. So Paul describes these verses, in these verses, what the civil governors ought to be doing. Emphasis on ought. But of course, there's no guarantee that they will always carry out their God-given duty. We recognize that we live in a fallen world where sinners can call black white, 
They can see things upside down, as we saw in chapter 1. Sinners suppress their knowledge of God and worship creatures rather than the Creator. They not only do things that they know lead to death, but also give hearty approval to others who practice them. And these deadly faults can, of course, be found in civil rulers just as well as in other men. So this brings us again to the question of a Christian's response to a corrupt civil government, which is not approving what is good and punishing what is evil, but instead approving what is evil and punishing what is good. Are we still to submit to such a government? Let me give you a brief answer this morning and save a more detailed discussion for next week. The brief answer is that we must always seek to obey God and not to sin against him. He has commanded us to submit to our civil rulers, yes, but when they command us to sin, our loyalty to God and his law must trump their unlawful commands. The government's authority comes from God, and it can never supersede his own. And so if there is ever any conflict, God's authority always wins. We see several examples of this in Scripture, which we'll look at next time. The midwives of Egypt who refuse to put to death the newborns of Israel. Daniel, who continues to pray to the Lord even when prayer is outlawed in Persia. And the apostles, who continue to preach the good news, even when the Sanhedrin commands them to stop, saying, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Acts 4, 19 and 20. Certainly we wish all cases today were as clear-cut as these. And making the decision to disobey governing authorities is not one that should be made quickly or lightly or without much prayer and counsel from fellow believers. But there does come a time when we must say, we must obey God rather than man. So civil disobedience is an option when required. But the general principle is submission to governing authorities. And the third reason for that is that rulers serve God by punishing evildoers and praising those who do good. This brings us to reasons four and five. To avoid God's wrath and for the sake of conscience. Verse five. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Reason four speaks of God's wrath. This is, in many ways, similar to the second reason, that you'll face judgment if you do not submit to the civil government. The only distinction here is that it emphasizes provoking God directly. On the second reason, it was not clear if the judgment would come from God or from the government. It is clear here. It will be God who will be provoked to wrath and God who will therefore punish. Needless to say, you do not want to provoke God to wrath. The fifth and final reason is for the sake of conscience. And this is a very important one because it's very possible that you can, devo- you can defy the government, especially in small ways, and perhaps you will get away with it. They may never know. Now, surely God will know. But as Paul points out here, you will know. Your conscience will know. 
And so Paul says, for the sake of your conscience, you must submit. There's a danger here of what the Bible calls a seared conscience. A chef who over time repeatedly burns his fingertips by touching hot pans or a burner will eventually burn out those nerves and lose feeling on his fingertips. This has a practical bonus that he will no longer feel that burning sensation. But it's also quite dangerous. He could get a very dangerous burn and not realize it. In a similar way, a person who repeatedly violates his conscience will sear the conscience so that he no longer feels guilt when he breaks God's law. This may seem like a practical bonus of alleviating a guilty conscience. But really what it is, is what Romans 1 describes as God's present wrath, handing sinners over to wallow in their sin. This is why Paul warns us not to violate conscience in the matter of concerning governing authorities. You may escape their notice, but you will not escape the notice of your own conscience. So that concludes our list of five reasons to submit to the governing authorities. And this must be a serious matter if Paul took the time to give five distinct reasons. First, because they have been appointed by God. Second, because you will incur judgment. Third, because rulers are God's servants to punish evil and praise good. Fourth, to avoid God's wrath. And fifth, for the sake of conscience. Now, with this command to submit, well established with these five reasons, Paul turns to a practical application. The payment of taxes. Verse 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Needless to say, the Internal Revenue Service is not people's favorite branch of the federal government, and each time April 15th rolls around, many people dread doing their taxes. But these sentiments are not new. You already know of the Jewish hatred for the tax collectors in Judea in Jesus' day. The Roman historian Tacitus records that taxes were particularly burdensome during the 50s AD in Rome so that there was a growing outcry from the common people, culminating in a tax revolt in AD 58. At this time, Emperor Nero had to intervene to restrain the tax collectors, and some of the burden was actually lightened. Although this letter was written a year or so before that tax revolt, The sentiments leading to it would have been stirring within the city, and Paul certainly did not want the Christians to get caught up in a tax rebellion. And so Paul encourages the Christians to pay their taxes, heavy though they were. This is also not the only place in the New Testament where the question is addressed. We already saw that Jesus taught his disciples to pay their taxes, and Paul was certainly aware of Jesus' teaching as he writes this letter. So in verse 6, Paul again states that the authorities are ministers of God. Here he's using a slightly different Greek word than before. His point is that when we pay our taxes, yes, we pay them to fund the civil government, but there is a sense in which we are paying them 
or giving them to God because we are paying them to God's servants who use them in their role to punish evildoers and praise them and praise those who do good. Now, there's a parallel here to the tithes and offerings that we give to the church. We give to our local church, but we are giving that they might serve the Lord in preaching the gospel and building up the kingdom of God. In both cases, we give to the servants of God so that they might serve in their particular roles. Of course, there's a distinction in that the church usually won't discipline you if you fail to give. Although I do hope that your elder asks during an elder visit, in a very general and not specific way, a general way, how are you doing financially? Are you regularly giving to support the church? For giving to the Lord is a commandment, and though it is done in secret, it is disobedience to not give to the Lord his tithes and offerings. However, if you fail to pay your taxes, the government will come after you until you pay along with interests and penalties. Another distinction may be that we are to give our offerings to the Lord with a cheerful heart. We are to give gladly. I don't see that required in the payment of taxes. However, I would also say we should not pay with grumbling and complaining, for it is a commandment of the Lord, and we should never obey the Lord with grumbling. I listened to the podcast of an economic commentator who is the son of a well-known American tax uh, protester, and he states openly that he agrees with many of his father's arguments. He doesn't believe that we ought to pay the income tax, and yet he faithfully pays his taxes because he knows that if he does not, he would go to prison just like his father who actually died in prison. But Paul does not say in verse 7, pay your taxes because if you do not pay them, you'll face the consequences you may go to prison. Rather, he says, pay them because you owe them. Verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This verse, verse 7, contains a list of four items. The first two, taxes and revenues, are technical terms for two different types of taxes in the Roman Empire, what we would call direct and indirect taxes today. The direct tax, called the tribute in the Roman Empire, applied to all the residents of the empire. And the indirect taxes were applied to specific activities like tolls for roads and bridges or particular types of transactions similar to the sales tax today. Now at this time in Rome, the discontent was specifically over the indirect taxes. But Paul simply says, whatever the tax, if you owe it, you are to pay it. Now, there's a more nuanced anti-tax argument today that goes like this. What if I pay only the proportion of my taxes that goes to support the legitimate duties of the government or the, the parts of the government I agree with? Some don't want to pay taxes related to supporting abortion or to support foreign wars that they disagree with. Now, this can get quite complicated, trying to calculate out what proportion of tax revenues goes to one cause or another and subtracting the taxes that go to truly evil causes. 
But think about it. Of course, Paul was well aware of the evils of the Roman government when he wrote this letter. And still, he commanded Christians to pay their taxes, all of their taxes. I don't think there's any way around the simple command. Not to mention the fact that paying taxes is an application of the general command to submit to the civil government with the five reasons Paul has already given for that. And he adds to this list that we are also to show respect and honor to whom it is due. This reminds us that part of submission is showing honor to those who are in a position of authority over us. And this ultimately stems from the fifth commandment, which is phrased not in terms of obedience or submission, but in terms of honor. Exodus twenty twelve, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Peter puts it the same way in 1 Peter two seventeen, Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. We see this in the way that Paul interacts with the civil authorities when he's given the chance. When interacting with the Roman governor, Felix, he addresses him as the most excellent Felix and opens his address by first thanking him for the reforms he has made in Judea. I'm sure Paul could have listed any number of grievances he had with Felix's rule, but he was following his own command and showing honor and respect to his civil ruler. We see the same in the way he later addresses King Agrippa in Acts 26. And so as Paul concludes this section with an application, the one he chooses to make here is to pay your taxes and to pay whatever you owe, but also honor and respect. As I said in the introduction, submission to government and paying taxes are not everyone's favorite biblical commands. Even with the recent Supreme Court victory for the pro-life cause, I think you'll agree our government is not generally headed in a direction that honors God and supports biblical justice and righteousness. Yet we can still be thankful that we don't live in the Roman Empire. Paul was writing in the early years of Nero's reign, and things were about to get much worse for Christians, as Nero grew far more tyrannical and corrupt in his later years and would begin to heavily persecute the church. Even as we are called to submit to governing authorities, we do not put our trust or our hope in them. The sword of the state has its place in punishing evildoers and maintaining a certain measure of justice in society, but in the church we have something far more powerful. We are called to wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is the power of the Word of God. And this is the good news that we preach, that Jesus Christ, our crucified Savior, is now the risen and ascended King who is reigning over all, even now. Even as he reigns on high, possessing all authority in heaven and on earth, he has left civil governments intact with their delegated authority, 
while he sends out his representatives to make disciples of all nations. And so the kingdom of God is spreading like leaven throughout the whole world. While we go out preaching the good news that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved, for there is salvation in no other name but in Jesus Christ alone. Once the full harvest of his chosen people has been gathered in, Christ will return, and all the nations of the earth will be shaken. They will be blown away as chaff before him, and only the kingdom of God will remain. And so I ask you, where does your ultimate loyalty lie? Yes, perhaps you are a citizen of the United States or perhaps of some other nation, but your true citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, before whom every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are God in heaven and you have for this time placed us here on earth to serve you while we live. We thank you that you have ordained the governing authorities for their purpose, to punish evildoers and praise the good. And Father, we pray for those in authority over us, that they would be more faithful in this task than they have been. Lord, we do pray for reform in our government, and not just for our government, but for the nations of the world. Even as we seek for more just government, help us never to put our trust in princes, but to trust only and always in our Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns above, and who raises up and casts down all those who are in places of authority over us. Our hope is in you. Help us to serve you more faithfully each and every day. We pray in the name of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.